allow me to be the second maybe to welcome you after Clay. Thanks, uh, Clay, for bringing us up to speed on everything that's going on. Uh, my name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis, and I just want to remind you, if you didn't see it when we came in, uh, we are going to take communion at the end of this message, so if you didn't grab your communion elements, they're on the tables in the back of the room. You might want to go grab those now. It would be an ideal time to do that. Uh, Dunkirk. Dunkirk. How many of you have seen the movie Dunkirk? Anyone? Dunkirk is a small city on the northeast coast of France. And in 1940, the kind of the beginning of World War II, it was being protected by just a few regiments of soldiers, British soldiers and French soldiers, as the Germans blitzed across through the Netherlands, down through Belgium and into the north of France. And uh, these soldiers, these battalions of soldiers were the only thing that were keeping the Germans from taking control of this important seaport and maybe uh, grabbing possession of France. A few days earlier, Neville Chamberlain had resigned as Prime Minister of Britain, leaving uh, uh, a coalition led by Winston Churchill in charge. You know, <clears throat> Winston Churchill, the one that gave the famous speech, never, never, never give up, right? That's Winston Churchill. So the German, uh, as the Germans blitzed down uh, through into, uh, surrounded Dunkirk, the Allies had a decision to make. Do we give up, right? Do we surrender? Or do we fight to preserve this part of France? Uh, but then a miracle happened. And it's, it's uh, something that's still kind of debated to this day. For some reason, we don't quite know why the Germans paused their assault on Dunkirk. And the Brits took this as a sign and an opportunity to evacuate. And so they gathered up a motley flotilla of craft, mostly fishing boats and leisure craft, uh, which could navigate the shallow waters around Dunkirk. And they went in and, and troops would wade out into the sea to be rescued by these approaching crafts. Now the G German Blitzkrieg worked. The Battle of Dunkirk happened in May and by June, the French had signed an armistice, uh, giving up mo most of the north of France to Germany. And it looked like the Axis had won in Europe. But the quick thinking of British leaders and the actions of the Royal Navy saved the lives of 338,000 men both French and British soldiers and sailors, men who were later re-equipped and sent back into battle. And many experts believe that without the surrender and evacuation at Dunkirk and all the soldiers and sailors who were saved there, the Germans would have won the war in Europe. But because these men were, men were able to be evacuated and redeployed, um, that Europe, or that uh, the Allies eventually won the war. Uh, that dark day that looked for all the world like defeat turned out to be victory in the end. And today we're going to see that what was true on the shores of France during World War II is often true in our walk with God, that what looks like defeat may actually be God's victory in disguise. Acts 1, uh, 8, 1, Acts 8, 1 says this, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now it says on that day. On what day? We have to understand this. It's on the day that Stephen was killed. You may remember we talked about Stephen a couple of weeks ago. He was a man who was uh, said to be filled with the Holy Spirit, who was appointed by the apostles to assist with the distribution of food in Jerusalem. But because of the presence of God's spirit in him, he was able to perform great signs and wonders that caused a lot of opposition from the leaders of the Jewish people. And uh, he started arguing with them. But the Bible said that Stephen's wisdom, which came from the Holy Spirit, that his wisdom was too great for the leaders. And so they had him brought before the Sanhedrin. This has kind of been a 
common theme we've seen throughout the first part of the book of Acts, right? Uh, some of the leaders of the church being brought before the Sanhedrin or the, high, the Jewish high court uh, to be tried. And when he was brought before the Sanhedrin, Stephen was able to uh, tell the entire story of God from the creation of the world in Genesis chapter one, all the way up through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible says they wouldn't listen to him. In Acts chapter seven, it says they, literally it says they were plugging their ears and gnashing their teeth. Just think about la, 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 I can't hear you. That's what the Jewish leaders were doing at this time. And they ended up stoning him to death. And it's on that day that the church was scattered throughout Jerusalem. Because of the stoning of Stephen, the church feared for its life and they scattered throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And it looked like defeat for the church but I'm getting way ahead of myself. We've been in this series uh, called Sent. We're, we're reading through the book of Acts together and we're gonna do this pretty much all year. We're gonna study through the first 14 chapters up until May and then uh, we're gonna take a break for the summer and then this fall we'll hit the rest of the book of Acts. Um, if you've not been following along or maybe you're just checking out Genesis, I wanna encourage you, we've got a few of these reading plans left out at the Info Hub. Uh, they're stuffed into a red journal. You're welcome to take a journal and one of these reading plans with you. We want you to be reading along with us. And I have good news for you. I mean, we're only eight chapters in, so if you haven't started, there's still plenty of time to do that. But even if you've started and you've fallen a little bit behind, this reading plan says that we're gonna study Acts chapter eight today, and we are, but only half of it. We're gonna do the other half next week. So if, you're, if you think you're a chapter behind, you're only half a chapter behind. So you can get caught up. Just grab one of these and read along with us. But if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter eight. That's where we're gonna spend the day today. The book of Acts tells the story of the birth and the growth of the first church. It's a true story of what happens right after, uh, in the years after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the story really starts in Acts chapter one, Acts 1, 8, with Jesus's last words to his followers before he ascends into heaven. In Acts 1, 8, he tells them this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, before we get into that, I just wanna go backward in time a little bit. I wanna go back to the time when Jesus was walking the earth before his death with his followers to a time where uh, I wanna show you something he said to Peter, okay? Peter, as you may know, was known as Simon originally. He was a man that was known as Simon. He was a fisherman. He uh, was one of Jesus's first followers and became one of his closest friends. But Peter was a guy who couldn't quite get it all together all the time. Sometimes he would be really brilliant and sometimes he would, kind of be a screw up. I, and that way I relate to Peter very much. Anybody else? I relate to Peter so much. Uh, he could be really a brilliant, one of the best, most loyal followers of Jesus. And then in the next moment, he could say something so dumb that you just go, really, Peter? I mean, but that's, that's what he does. Uh, but Jesus is asking his disciples one day, what are people saying about me? So he says, uh, what, what are they saying about me? And his disciples start saying, well, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're Elijah. Some think you're John the Baptist that's been raised from the dead. And then Jesus asked them this question. And this is so important. And if, if, if you're here today, this is an important question for you to answer, okay? Jesus looked at them and said, but who do you say I am? And Peter had one of his brilliant moments right now, okay? He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this is what Jesus, how Jesus responded, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter. Now remember, Peter means rock. And so he's telling Simon, this kind of screw up half the time, 
you are a rock. I'm telling you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, here's what I want you to see. In this verse, who does Jesus say is going to build his church? He says, I will, right? I will, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, what does he say in Acts 1.8? He says, you, my followers, you will be my witnesses. Do you get the dichotomy there? You be my witnesses, I'll build my church. You be my witnesses, I'll build my church. That's the role that Jesus has and the role that we have in building up the church. Now, here's what I want you to see. The first church was successful and the gospel started to spread throughout Jerusalem and then into the surrounding areas, not because they had a great building, not because they had cool programs or a creative teaching series, not because they had an awesome children's ministry. It grew because they were a people who were sent. The people were witnesses. And as a result, Jesus built his church, right? They were a family on mission. And so what we've seen early in the book of Acts is uh, growth. I mean, the church starts with 120 people in Acts chapter one uh, who come after Jesus is brought back from the dead and then they start to grow. And then we've said, we think that by Acts chapter six, uh, it says that they've got about 5,000 men that are part of the church. And we think when you include women and children with that, there's probably 15 or 20,000 people in the church. And that creates this widow problem we talked about two weeks ago in Acts chapter six. The church is not doing a good job of taking care of its own. And so they appoint seven men, including Stephen, who we just talked about, and Philip, who we're gonna talk about today, and then five others to help with food distribution. But this growth is not just causing problems in the church. It's also turning the church into quite a force. Uh, they're becoming quite a force. And in fact, it's one that's uh, raising the fear of the leaders of the Jewish people, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, um, the, the Sanhedrin, this court, they're a little bit afraid of what's happening in the church. And that's why they feel compelled to deal with Stephen and the things that are happening and stoning, stone him to death. And so that's where we are now as we start chapter eight. So uh, Acts 8.1 says that, it says this, and Saul approved of their killing him. This is Stephen, okay? We'll talk about Saul in a minute. But on that day, on the day that Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Stephen is killed. The church is scattered. It looks like, hey, this has been a fun ride but really it's coming to an end. Now, a couple of things that I want you to notice in this passage. First, it mentions the man named Saul, mentions him twice, in fact. The killing of Stephen really seems to light a fire under him. We're gonna learn about Saul uh, later as we read through the book of Acts. In fact, at the risk of spoiling what happens in the rest of the book of Acts, I want you to know that Saul kind of becomes really the main character in the second half of Acts. He uh, converts to Christ. He comes to know Jesus as his savior. He becomes one of the most prolific church planners the world has ever known and uh, writes about two thirds of the New Testament. So there are good things coming for Saul, but that's later. We're gonna talk about him later, all right? Um, second, please notice that Luke is intentional in telling us who is leaving Jerusalem and who's staying behind. What we see is uh, the apostles are staying behind in Jerusalem and who's leaving? basically everybody else, everybody else except the apostles are going. Uh, the people, the lay leaders of the church, the, the apostles are staying behind and the people who are leaving are 
the people who are greeting people at the doors, the people who are watching the kids and serving the bagels. I'm sure they had bagels there. I mean, they're kosher, right? So um, those people, those are the people who are being scattered. So if we're looking in this room, like I'm going to stay, you guys are going to go. Now, when I think of the word scattered, I often think of seed. And I think that's not uh, a mistake by Luke because the word that's used here for scattered, the Greek word is the word diaspersion. And diaspersion is uh, related to the Greek word for seed. In fact, it's, it's spring now. I was uh, walking out through my yard this afternoon, first time I've done that in a while, or not, uh, this week, not this afternoon. We're not there yet. Um, I was walking out through my yard this week and I noticed that my lawn could use some seed right? Uh, it's looking a little sparse, looking a little run down from the winter. I'm going to do that. But when we scatter seed, what do we do? We don't just dump it all in one place, right? That would make a nice couple of square feet of lawn, but then the rest of your lawn will be brown and nasty. And so what we do is we disperse it, right? We scatter it. We scatter it so that it's equally spread throughout everywhere. And then you get a nice even lawn coming up. That's what's happening with the Christians who were all clumped together in Jerusalem. But because of this killing, because of this evil thing that happened that God didn't cause to happen, he's going to use that to scatter the Christians into the rest of the world. But check this out. Where do they go? They are scattered throughout, it says, Judea and Samaria. Do you remember what Jesus told them in Acts 1.8? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and where? Judea and Samaria. This is the first time it's mentioned since Acts 1.8. Those places, uh, those are the places that, that they're going to go. And so that's the places they end up fleeing to. So this could be defeat for the church, right? Or it could be a part of God's grand plan. So friends, so often what looks like defeat may actually be God's victory in disguise. Look at what happens here. Acts 8, 4 says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, the word that's translated here as wherever they went is the Greek word diarchomai. Um, two Greek words in one sermon. I'm telling you guys, we are getting deep here, okay? <laughs> two, uh, diarchomai means, uh, it's often translated as as they were going, like as they went. In other words, it's showing that they're going to go preach the word as they went about their daily business. They're not preaching, the, they're not going somewhere to go preach the word. They're going somewhere out of necessity. And as they go, they're going to go preach the word. Now, this is important because I think there's a segment of our church, not just Genesis Church, but like the, the Western Church, the Universal Church. There's a part of us that's waiting to be sent, right? We think that at some point, God is going to speak audibly to us. And he's going to tell us what we're supposed to go do to go spread his message. Like he's going to send us on a mission trip so we can go away and go share the gospel in Haiti. Or he's going to force us to quit our corporate job and become a pastor so that we can preach the word uh, to people all the time. Or he's going to send us to a new neighborhood or a new job where we can share our faith there. But I want you to notice what's happening here in the, in the first church. It's, it's not the pastor's or the apostles, remember, but the ordinary people that it says preached the word wherever they went, preached the word as they went. They didn't go somewhere to preach the word. They went, they went out of necessity. They went because they feared for their lives, but wherever they went, they preached the word. Now, I just want to take a moment as I, we think about that to share something with followers of Jesus in the room right now. If you're not a Christian or you're just checking out Jesus, you don't know what you think about him, you can tune out for a couple minutes, okay? Just, you have my permission. Scroll your phone, take a nap, whatever it is. Followers of Jesus, pay attention for a minute. A recent study shows that 78% of us Christians have not shared the gospel with anyone in the last six months. Okay. In other words, 
only two out of 10 of us, us who have had our lives radically changed by Christ, have told anyone in the last six months how they can do the same. Doesn't that seem a little unloving? I mean, think about this. In the last six months, how many times have you recommended something to someone? Maybe it was a restaurant, maybe it was a TV show or a movie, maybe it was a YouTube video, probably more than once, right? How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody? We have the best news in the history of mankind that while we were still sinners, Christ died for me and he rose to life again to show that he can overcome anything that's happening in my life and that when I trust him to be the Lord of my life, he promises that I get to live forever with him. That is awesome. But eight out of 10 of us are afraid to say that to people we know and love. And so really quickly, I just wanna share something with you. I wanna give you three reasons to share the gospel wherever you go. Number one is this, we live in a broken world. All right, uh, even your non-Christian friends know that something about this world isn't right. It doesn't uh, take a genius to turn on the news and say, something isn't working here. It's not like it's supposed to be. Uh, People all around us are hurting. Sin is the cause and Jesus is the cure. The second reason that you need to share the gospel is you have a unique story. If you've been saved by Christ, how he did that and what he saved you from is unique to you. And your story is gonna speak to some people in a way that, my story won't, or that other people's story won't. And even if you don't think you have a very exciting story, right, your story is gonna speak to people in a unique way. The third reason is that God has called us all to be on this mission. Now, you may not be called to be a missionary, but you are called to a mission. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his followers, he stood before them and said, now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. That was for all of us. We've gotta do better. We've got to do better. And if you don't know how to share the gospel with someone, uh, I wanted to share a couple of resources with you. Maybe the first place I'd go is on our website to go look for the three circles. If you go to genesischurch.me slash three dash circles, you can find it there. You can find a simple step-by-step description. Here it is on the screen of how to share the three circles or the good news with somebody. Uh, You can do it on a piece of scratch paper or on a napkin. And if you've never tried that before, I just wanna encourage you to go there this week and practice it. We've we've had the opportunity to practice with a few people over the past few weeks, and it's really encouraging to see how easy it is to share the good news of Jesus with someone. Now, I know that some of you, many of you probably, will never be forced to go somewhere that you don't want to go. And that's okay, that's okay. But some of you, for instance, work for a multinational corporation. And there's a chance that at some point you might be transferred to another city, another place, another country. Wouldn't it be great if you knew how to preach the good news wherever you went? Uh, Some of you in the room are high school students or middle school students, and someday you're gonna go to college or you're gonna go to the military. You're gonna end up in a different city or in a culture that's so uh, different from yours. Wouldn't it be cool if the roommates or your, the people on your floor would look at you and go, man, there's something different about her. I don't know what it is, but I gotta know more about this. You can be equipped to preach the gospel wherever you go. But some of you, I mean, many of you probably are gonna stay right here. You can stay in, in Noblesville, stay in your city, in your town, in your neighborhood for the rest of your life. And that's fine because God can use you there also. Wouldn't it be nice to be equipped to share the gospel wherever you go? Uh, Romans 12.1 calls this being a living sacrifice. And I know that sounds out of date and maybe kind of bloody. So I like how uh, the message paraphrase of the Bible puts it. It says Romans uh, 12.1. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. 
Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Now, I feel like that's something we can do, right? That's something I can get behind. In other words, would you be willing to take everything that you're already doing, go all the places you're already going, and use it for God's glory by helping other people find their way back to him? I just want to tell you why this is important because there was another study I read this week that shows that uh, 48% of Americans, 48%, okay, almost half, 48% of Americans will never set foot in a church. And so it doesn't matter how much better I get at preaching, okay? It doesn't matter how great our band is or our music is or how good our graphics or videos are. If someone is not telling those people the good news, half of us will never get to hear it. Okay, non-Christians, come back to me now. I'm gonna finish this up. We've got more to look at. So often we said, what looks like defeat is actually God's victory in disguise. And by the way, this isn't just true for the church, okay? This is true in your life as well. Uh, it, it may be that you're going through a crisis right now. Maybe there's a health crisis for you or for someone you love. You know, maybe it's a financial crisis. Uh, maybe it's a family crisis, something with your parents or with your kids that's happening. Maybe it's a relationship that's breaking up or a, a divorce. I, I know for many of you, it may look bleak. But remember, what looks like defeat can actually be God's victory in disguise. I was talking to a friend this week, and he was sharing with me that he's got a desire to teach more. He wants to uh, learn more about the Bible and be able to teach others about the Bible. The Lord is just doing some really cool things in him and he wants to be able to share it with other people. And um, I realized that my friend's been through a really messy divorce over the past year or two and it's left broken relationships with his family. It's um, broken up some of his best friends and even in the church. And I know that for my friend, the divorce wasn't something he chose, but he had some fault in it. You know, we know there's always fault on both sides here. But even though it wasn't something that he chose and it's left him heartbroken and seeking answers, um, I saw this newfound vigor in him for God and for the word of God. And I had to ask him, I said, how much of this can be attributed to your divorce and everything that you went through? And here's what he said. He said, you know how much? A hundred percent. A hundred percent of his pursuit of God was due to the divorce. He said, it's the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life. He said, I'm still suffering the consequences from it. And if I could go back and redo the last two years of my marriage, I would do it in a heartbeat. He said, but it took that to spark a change I knew I needed to make. And the result has been some like personal and spiritual growth that has been amazing. He says, I now look forward to a future that I thought held nothing good for me. See, what looks like defeat can often be God's victory in disguise. And that's exactly what we're gonna see with the first church. I wanna show you what the result of, uh, was of their sharing the gospel wherever they went. What can change, okay? What can happen in this world if we're intentional about sharing the gospel of Jesus? Uh, Acts 8.5 goes like this. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in this city. Now, if you've never heard of this, it was very uncommon for a Jewish person even to go into Samaria. 
At one time, the nation of Israel was divided. There was a place called Israel in the north, and then there was Judah or Judea in the south, and then kind of sandwiched in between them was Samaria. And uh, the Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. The Samaritans had intermarried with some other races of people, which the Lord specifically told them not to do. But the ones that we now know as the Jews had been taken into captivity and gone away. The Samaritans had stayed in the land. If you missed the Going Deeper event with Dr. Cindy Parker, she talked a lot about this, about the different perspectives of the Jews and the Samaritans. I just wanna encourage you to check that out. You can still find it on our YouTube channel. It's uh, Going Deeper, Dr. Cindy Parker. But you know, the, the Samaritans were a mixed race people. The Jews wouldn't wear mixed fiber clothing, okay? They weren't about to associate with mixed race people and be in community with them. Samaria was a completely different culture than most Jews uh, didn't understand. And when we don't understand a culture, we tend to fear it. And when we fear a culture, we tend to avoid it, but not Philip. Philip went into Samaria proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And what happened? Well, he healed people. He served their needs. He, people listened. They listened to the message. And because he went into the dark places and engaged with a culture that he didn't really understand and maybe didn't trust, and he served the people that were there, people came to know Christ. And look what it says. It says there was great joy in that city. Let me ask you, Genesis, what if that could be us? Like, what if we were the ones bringing great joy to our cities? It doesn't matter if you live in Noblesville or Westfield or Carmel or Fishers or Indy or Sheridan or Kokomo or somewhere else. There are problems in your city. There are problems in your town. And one of the best definitions I've ever heard of evangelism is this one. Evangelism is ordinary people living intentionally to bring joy to their city. Isn't that great? So with that in mind, let me just share a few of the places we're already operating through our partners, through our outreach partners uh, at Genesis Church. We are fighting poverty in Indianapolis through Shepherd Community Center and Food for Souls. Uh, Shepherd Community Center works with a couple of neighborhoods on the near east side of Indianapolis. You guys know you brought uh, our church together, donated over 200 bags of food that we're sending down to them for spring break. So thank you for that. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Food for Souls is a, a outreach to homeless uh, people in Indianapolis that live in many of the homeless camps. They make a trip down into Indianapolis every Sunday. And uh, they're always looking for people to join those. Uh, we're bringing Jesus into middle schools and high schools through Young Life uh, in Westfield and Noblesville and all throughout Northeast Indianapolis, in fact. And also uh, through a special partnership we've got with White River Elementary School, we're now doing some cool things with the elementary schools here in Noblesville. Uh, we're working in the foster care system through our partners at uh, Hope and Olive, which is based right here out of Genesis and the Cooper House uh, in Miami, Florida with Reality Church and so many others. And maybe you, maybe you hear that and these things kind of scare you. Like they're outside your culture. You don't know how you'll react around the homeless person. Uh, you're not sure how a foster child or, or helping minister to a foster family fits into your plans. And, and middle school care, kids, man, they scare the poop out of you. I get it. I mean, right? It's, but your simple actions, using part of your time to do something great for someone who can't do anything great for you is one way that you can preach the gospel wherever you go. By, by the way, do you know what the word gospel means? We haven't talked about this yet. It, it, gospel just means good news. And we use it almost exclusively to talk about the good news of Jesus, right? The God, we talk about the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. But the word gospel was around way before Jesus. 
In fact, it was used just, the gospel was a message that was expected to have a positive reception. In fact, before Jesus, it was most often used as a, describe a victory message delivered by a general. The, The gospel was a message that says the battle is already won. How great is that? Because our gospel message is to remember that in Jesus, we are the victors, but we don't even have to fight the battle. It's important we remember that when we try to share the gospel, that the battle is already won. The battle is not even ours to fight. The battle was won by a single carpenter who left a perfect heaven to come to earth as a helpless baby in a far off corner of Israel, who a boy who grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, who lived a sinless life, always listening to God the Father, always staying in step with him, A simple carpenter who was put to death, death on a cross because he refused to deny what he knew to be true. But what looks like defeat can often be God's victory in disguise. And because he was raised from the dead on the third day, showing that God, our God can overcome anything that we have to go through. And now he's enthroned in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God God, and he's leading the church and he's interceding on our behalf. And his name is Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so thankful for that gospel message that you sent your one and only son to fight the battle that we should have fought, to live the life that we should live, to take the punishment that we should have taken. But Lord, that on the third day, you raised him from the dead. And God, we want to celebrate that. We're going to take a time of communion and we want to remember your son Jesus as he um, went to the cross for us and took the punishment that we deserve. We're thankful that you give us this symbol through the bread and the juice of what it meant that you gave up your son's life on our behalf. And God, we don't take that lightly. We want to take a moment and remember that until he comes back. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name.